This song by Los Angeles rapper YG became an anti-Trump rap anthem during the election. It's an important song for what it reveals about that immediate, visceral hip-hop backlash against the president. But that's not why I'm playing it. I'm playing it for this. Look, Reagan so cold. Obama so hope. Donald Trump spent his trust for money on the vote. Reagan, Reagan so cold. Reagan, Reagan so cold. Trump spent his trust for money on the vote. His pressure built up and it's probably gonna blow. This song is from just last summer. And again, I don't play it for the anti-Trump sentiment, but because it's a song in 2016 where you still hear that anger and resentment against Reagan, especially in YG's Los Angeles, which was where Nicaraguan cocaine flowed in most heavily, and where that abundance of cocaine led to the advent of crack. A lot of people argue that without all that cocaine, crack might have never really become a thing. America would be much different. But the question is whether Reagan had anything to do with that drug wave. It's a shocking, almost unbelievable charge made by hip-hop. And it only starts to make sense as we watch Reagan and his men during Iran-Contra testing the waters of further and further degrees of criminality. In the last episode, we started looking at the Contra part of Iran-Contra. But the drift toward criminality really accelerates with the Iran side and when Congress cuts off the money for Reagan's war in Nicaragua. <laughs> That's Congress in 1984. We got your Contra money and we ain't giving it back. Your obsession with the Sandinistas is weird and unfounded. It's not a Soviet outpost. And now your CIA just mined a civilian harbor in Nicaragua. For Christ's sake, why did y'all put bombs in a civilian harbor? And Congress says, you're acting like you're above the law. And you're not. We make the laws. Congress makes the laws. And here's a new one. The United States government can't fund a contra overthrow of the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Period. But Reagan tells his men to keep the contras together. Despite that, keep them together, quote, body and soul. Find the money, he says, and lots of it. If you face the history of the United States vis-a-vis -vis Latin America and Central America, there has never been a time when a country made a revolution for the poor people where it was not overthrown by the CIA Overthrown by the CIA. Over, over, overthrown by the CIA. Over, overthrown by the CIA. Welcome back to The Crux. I'm Matt Pulver. I want to encourage everybody to visit thecruxpodcast.com for lots of additional information, uh, music about Reagan and Iran-Contra that didn't make it onto the show, uh, sources for further reading if you want to dig down deeper into the sources that I draw upon for the show. Um, for this episode, I've started compiling a glossary, uh, sort of who's who of the figures involved. There are lots more figures coming in this episode, lots of names coming at you. So if it gets confusing, just hop over to thecruxpodcast.com and, and hopefully things will get cleared up a little bit for you over there. And I invite everyone to like and follow The Crux on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash The Crux Podcast or just search for The Crux Podcast. That's where I'm beginning to post um Stories, fun facts, little details that don't make it into the episodes. 
There's so much stuff that I don't get to include. And I think Facebook is probably the best place to push that stuff out to folks who, who want to know more. And once again, the crux is free for listeners. It always will be. But it is not at all free to make and maintain. So if you enjoy The Crux, please consider supporting The Crux on Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com and search for The Crux Podcast. So the Contras start out as only around 250 men, almost entirely ex-Guardia, ex-Samoza National Guard men. And they're posted up in Honduras. It's the country just north of Nicaragua. It's this little shit-kicking ragtag group. Peter Cornblue and Malcolm Byrne write that they, quote, resorted to random violence and chicken theft to survive. They're just criminals sort of across the border in Honduras. But now with the CIA funding them, they've grown to around 8,000 men by 1984. And they're launching attacks against Nicaragua from those bases in Honduras. Now they've got weapons and food and supplies and logistics and all that. But they're back to chicken theft without CIA money. And now Congress, through what's called the Boland Amendment, they've shut it down. Let me read the Boland Amendment to you, and and hopefully it doesn't get too weird when it's read aloud. But the Boland Amendment goes, No funds available to the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, or any other agency or entity of the United States involved in intelligence activities may be obligated or expended for the purpose of or which would have the effect of supporting directly or indirectly military or paramilitary operations in Nicaragua by any nation, group, organization, movement, or individual. End quote. There ain't no kind of loopholes in this new Boland Amendment. There'd been an earlier Boland Amendment the year before, but Reagan's guys found loopholes in it, and they just kept things going. But this new Boland Amendment, Boland II, appear to foreclose on any legal ways that the U.S. government, especially the CIA or Defense Department, could fund the Contras. The game is over. But Reagan tells his men to keep the Contras together, quote, body and soul, despite the funds running out. Body and soul. I guess that means in old man Reagan speak, like the whole thing. Keep them together. Even though you ain't got shit for money. So this means that Reagan's men have to find money wherever it can be found outside of the U.S. government. And this is not chump change. This is many, many millions of dollars. They need well over $100 million a year to really move the needle at all. I mean, 8,000 guys on the money that they have now is not enough to overthrow the Nicaraguan government. They need a shit ton of money. But now the money is cut off by Congress. But Reagan is clear to his men. You must keep the Contras together, body and soul. I know it's illegal for us to fund the Contras, but fund them anyway. So Reagan and his guys, they form this thing called the Enterprise. It's what the Congressional Final Report on Iran-Contra called, quote, the secret arm of the National Security Council staff without the accountability or restrictions imposed by law on the CIA, end quote. So just out there, just rogue as fuck, with no no oversight whatsoever. And it's headed up by a central player in Iran-Contra that we haven't encountered yet, Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, a National Security Council staff member. Now, was the CIA still involved? Hell yeah, they were. 
But Reagan's guys had moved the command of the Contras, both the fundraising and the operations, to the staff level of the National Security Council, to an assistant or, or like a deputy of the National Security Advisor. Because that makes it legal, I guess. Like, like I didn't steal the car. I just told my car thieving ass cousin that I needed a car and that I didn't want to pay anything for it. And then this Lexus showed up one day, and that's what I drive now. I'm totally innocent. All legal, right? I don't know if that's a good metaphor or not. It just came to me. But the CIA is still being used. The president and the vice president were still involved. But the actual command was moved like just below the cabinet level to Oliver North at the National Security Council. Now, this is to keep the activity hidden, this thing, this enterprise run by North and others, but it's also to establish deniability for Reagan. North reports in his memoirs that, quote, in all my time in Washington, I never met alone with him, him meaning Reagan. But North goes on to write that the goal of all of this, the enterprise, was to ensure plausible deniability for Reagan. Make it so that there's a layer between Reagan and North. So that North's activity with the Contras, especially the funding and the arming of the Contras, is transmitted from North through the National Security Advisor. That's Robert McFarlane. And then this guy, John Poindexter. It's all about plausible deniability for Reagan. That is, he'll know what's happening, but, but he can play like he didn't. Because he and North never met alone. Like they were at meetings together, just not alone. So that means Reagan isn't guilty, I guess. And then there's Vice President Bush, who would, of course, succeed Reagan and get elected president in 1988. And he was said by government investigators to be surrounded by a, quote, solid wall of denials during Iran-Contra. If news ever got out about what they were doing, they wanted to make it look like Reagan and Bush were just ignorant of the entire operation of the enterprise. So what's happening in 1983-84 is that the CIA is launching attacks against Nicaragua and attributing the attacks to the Contras. The Contras are just not able to do what the CIA can do. Again, it takes a lot of money and a lot of men and a lot of institutional you know, power to overthrow a government. And the Contras are not ready for that. They're not near ready for that. But the CIA can do a lot and they can make the Contras look bigger and badder by carrying out these attacks and, and attributing them to the Contras. But news gets out of the CIA mining the harbor. Like, <clears throat> how did they think that putting bombs in civilian waters was going to stay quiet? I don't know, but they did it and they got caught. And Congress says, OK, fuck y'all. We're shutting it down for real this time. And now in 1984, they're moving to cut off the money. So Reagan and his guys are running out of money fast in 1984. They're ass out by spring. But again, Reagan has said to keep the Contras intact, body and soul. So the first big plan is to hit up third party countries for cash on the low, on the low, low. Get other countries to pay for it. This is how they'll first try to fund the enterprise. But again, 
now that they're operating with this new intense secrecy and this desire to maintain deniability for Reagan and Bush, it's weird. There are lots of secrets and like some guys know things and other guys don't. It, it starts to get weird. And we get a really interesting window into this during a fascinating, at least to me, fascinating National Security Council meeting in June of 1984. So the gang is all there. Reagan, Bush, the CIA director, Secretary of Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the whole bunch. But because of this new shadowy enterprise thing, there are now secrets even within the National Security Council. Like the most powerful men maybe in the world, but not everybody is in the loop. And folks in the loop have to play dumb, which is, you know, which is totally how people act when they're, when they're you know, assured that what they're doing is legal, right? They keep, keep a bunch of secrets. So at this meeting, they're strategizing the Contras. And so we get reports back from uh, the Secretary of Defense, this guy, Casper Weinberger, whose name is amazing. And he reports on troop levels and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Director of the CIA, William Casey, he reports on Contra activity. And he reports that they are down to basically nothing in the bank. They got $250,000 for the Contras. And it's going quick. And so the conversation moves on to the topic of, of third parties, third countries that they could get cash from to fund the Contras. And that's what makes this declassified transcript of the meeting so interesting because some of the guys there have already been doing that. They are actively doing it. But it's like, but they're, they're on some like, I'm just asking for a friend. I have a, I have a friend who's interested in the legality of, of third party funding for Contra armies. So here's what we know. We know that CIA director William Casey had already at that point been seeking funds from apartheid South Africa, which he says approximately jack shit about at the meeting. National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane, he's already been hitting up Saudi Arabia. Crickets on that. Even though that's what they're talking about, they're talking about third country funding but William Casey and Robert McFarlane aren't saying shit about what they've been doing very recently. And all of a sudden, Secretary of State George Shultz, he comes through with the, yeah, but if we did that, if we did seek money from third countries, that'd be wild illegal. He and Jim Baker, who'd been Reagan's chief of staff until a few months before, they say, quote, if we go out and try to get money from third countries, it is an impeachable offense. <laughs> So Secretary Schultz, he says, well, okay, let's see what the attorney general thinks before, you know, going forward. The attorney general at the time is William French Smith, and he's the only principal player not at the meeting that day. But Edwin Meese, who would become attorney general in just a few months, he is there. At the time, Meese is Reagan's legal counsel. And he's apparently been kept in the dark, too, or, or so it appears, because he says that they need to, quote, find the proper and legal basis before seeking this third party, third country money for the Contras. So now the guys in the loop who know that they've already been doing this, they're trying to defend something that is being called illegal. No, no, no. It's being called impeachable by the guys who don't know it's already happening. No, it is already happening. The impeachable shit is already happening. It is ongoing. Vice President Bush, who, who almost certainly knew what was going on. I mean, come on. Bush was former head of the CIA in the 70s. He knew what was going on. Come on. 
he defends the idea of getting money from, from other countries to fund the Contras. But he says, quote, the only problem that might come up is that the United States were to promise to give these third parties something in return, end quote. A quid pro quo, right? This for that, a transaction. That's what would make it extra illegal. A quid pro quo was what would make it undeniably impeachable. That's the, the sort of consensus that, that seems to form in the room. Despite there being a record now of quid pro quos offered the countries. The quid pro quo offered to Manuel Noriega in Panama is insane, which I'll get to later. But let's look at the countries that, that they're hitting up for money. Apartheid South Africa. That piece of shit government. The nightmare kingdom of Saudi Arabia where women are beheaded on the regular, and Israel, which was, of course, illegally occupying Palestinian territory. The quid for the quo is that the United States will let you cook with your apartheid or your military occupation or your humanitarian shithole. Give us quid, and the quo is the status quo. You can continue to flout international law and, and basic norms of, of humanitarian decency. Now, there's this sort of narrow view of illegal quid pro quos where if they fund the Contras and then you like reward them immediately with something like, like a free T-shirt or a commemorative mug or, or some shit, and that would be illegal. But, but I think we have to look at it more broadly. I mean, think about it. The first nation they approached was South Africa. In the mid-80s, the apartheid regime in, in South Africa was facing this global backlash that would be ending apartheid in just a few years. The quid for the quo is, give the Sandinistas money, and we won't call you out like the rest of the whole fucking world about your insane, brutal, violent apartheid state. We'll let you continue with white rule in Africa in the 80s. We'll continue to run cover for you. In fact, Reagan vetoed Congress the next year when they tried to levy sanctions on South Africa because of apartheid. I'd call that a, a quid or a quo or whatever. So back to the meeting. The meeting ends with National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane proposing that, quote, there be no authority for anyone to seek third-party support, end quote, for the Contras until they know about the legality of it. Despite the fact that he's already been involved in it with South Africa and Saudi Arabia. Then he says, quote, I certainly hope none of this discussion will be made public in any way. Why? Because it's so fucking legal? Then Reagan, quote, Reagan says this, quote, if such a story gets out, we'll all be hanging by our thumbs in front of the White House, end quote. I'm not sure if that's the punishment for what y'all are scheming right now. I'm pretty sure it's just prison, but I get your point. Congress doesn't end up making all of this legal, this third country funding until December of 1985. That's a full year and a half later. But that doesn't stop them from hitting up these 
bullshit regimes around the world for, for Contra cash. Reagan himself convinces the Saudis to like double what they'd initially agreed to give. They go from $1 million a month to $2 million a month. The Contras, like I said, remember they were down to $250,000 at the time of that June meeting. By July, the next month, they're putting in a million dollars a month. And Reagan soon convinces King Fahd, the Saudi king, to double that. Two mil a month. Only the money is going to this secret Cayman Islands bank account, which is the beginning of these secret accounts and shell companies and all these means of making the enterprise into what North and his guys envisioned. This like standalone, self-funded CIA-type entity, but one that's way more secretive than even the CIA. This thing that operates entirely in the shadows. As crazy as the CIA is, which I've already covered a little bit of, and I'll, I'll continue to, the CIA is, is still subject to a good degree of congressional oversight. You can make FOIA requests, and, and you know there are all these types of restraints on the CIA, as crazy as the CIA is. But what North envisions for the enterprise is this thing that's just completely off the books. No one knows anything about it. It's subject to no oversight. And what North has also done is he's recently brought this new guy onto the Enterprise who's going to be like his right-hand man in, in charge of buying arms. And this is former Air Force Major General Richard Secord. Secord had been in the military, in the Air Force, but he'd been on, the, on that shady CIA side of, of the military. Like in Vietnam, there were all the official missions, and then there's all the, the secret shit they were doing in Laos and stuff like that where the CIA might have been involved. And that's the world that Secord is from. And so he knows somehow how to move in, in that weird international arms market, which not many people on earth know how to do. So here's how it works. That money is coming from the Saudis and, and whoever else, and it's going into that account in the Caymans, in the Cayman Islands. And the Contras have access to it, or, or one of the leaders of the Contras, this guy Adolfo Calero, he has access to that account. But now North and this new guy, Richard Secord, they're now the arms dealer to the Contras. Which is all well and good, except what North and Secord start doing is they start turning a profit on their arms sales to the Contras. Because like I've said, they want the enterprise to be this standalone self-funded thing. So they're starting to skim money off of these things. So that they have this CIA thing that's even more secretive, even more shadowy than the CIA itself. So Secord goes out and he buys $9 million worth of AKs and rocket launchers and surface-to-air missiles and all these things on this super shadowy global arms market. And then him and North turn around and, and sell them to the Contras for $11.5 million. They pull a $2.3 million profit. On that arms deal, that first big arms deal after all that Saudi money starts coming in, they're turning a profit on these soldiers, these, these freedom fighters that they love to call them when they were talking to us Americans about them. These people that we're supposed to care so much about and that we're hanging on by a thread. 
now North and Secord are turning major profits on these guys. And that's when things start to go even further off the rails. But that's only the first chapter in the Enterprise. Because then we get to Iran, and that's when things get out of control. So guess what? This Iran chapter starts off also with a CIA coup. In 1953, the year before the coup in Guatemala from the last episode, the CIA engaged in its first major coup when they engineered the removal of the elected leader of Iran because a corporation wanted them to. Sounds familiar, right? So this leader of Iran, democratically elected leader of Iran, Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, he did what the Sandinistas did, what Guatemala did, what Salvador Allende in Chile did. He said to the corporations, no, you can't just take from us. And Prime Minister Mossadegh moved to nationalize Iranian oil. That is, make it the property of the Iranians and not that of a Western oil company, a company that would eventually be known as BP. And guess what? The CIA came in at the request of that oil company, and it engineered a coup on Mossadegh. So much is made these days about Iran and its you know, lack of, of very much democracy, but Iran used to be a democracy before BP and the CIA came in and ended democracy for the profits of that oil company. And just like Washington did in Latin America, they installed this brutal, unelected dictator, the Shah. Shah means king in, in Farsi. I mean, it's complicated, but, but what essentially happened is that the CIA removed Mossadegh, the elected leader, and moved the Shah into the more powerful position. The Shah becomes the, the dictator. And they kept the Shah in power and this will sound familiar, by forming and training his secret police, called the Savak. The Savak tortured and murdered thousands of the Shah's opponents in order to keep that pro-U.S. leader in power. Time magazine in 1979 described the Savak as, quote, Iran's most hated and feared institution. And it was in 1979 that the Iranian people finally rose up and got rid of the Washington-backed Shah. The parallels to, to Nicaragua and Central America are worth noting here, right? The CIA engineers a coup against the elected leader of Iran, Mossadegh, in 1953, and against the elected leader of Guatemala the next year in 1954. Of course, if you remember from the last episode, with Washington's friend Somoza assisting on that one, both were done at the behest of American and Western corporations who saw national sovereignty as a threat to their profits. Somoza's National Guard is U.S. trained, as is the Shah's Savak secret police. And both the Iranians and the Nicaraguans rise up in 1979. The one big difference, though, is that the Iranian revolution is much more aggressively anti-American. You saw a chance of death to America and all this during that revolution. And that revolution sort of gets hijacked by these religious zealots. So Iran becomes this pretty nasty theocracy. 
And they're all about this death to America talk, which, I mean, you know, you can't really blame them for, right? I mean, the U.S. trained Savak had been terrorizing everybody. We had installed, or not we, Washington had installed the Shah. And they had a lot of reason to be mad at America, but they're, they're extra serious about it. And so this brings us back to 1984, where we are in the story. And what's happening is in Lebanon, you have these Iran-backed militant groups like Hezbollah and others who have taken several American hostages, including the CIA station chief in Beirut. And if there's anything Reagan cares about, it's bringing those hostages home. That's really important to him. Important enough, I guess, that he decides to start selling weapons to the Iranians in 1985 to get those hostages back. To trade arms for hostages. The problem with that, or the main problem, is that Iran had just been named a state sponsor of terrorism by his own administration the previous year. Iran had become, I believe, only the fifth country then on the list. So Reagan is selling weapons to terrorists, according to his own administration. That's a problem. The second problem is that it could very easily incentivize hostage-taking, right? Oh, oh, you sell us arms when a hostage gets taken? Noted. Reagan said exactly that in a June 1985 public statement, just as the Iranian arms sales were about to begin. Reagan said, quote, America will never make concessions to terrorists. He's talking about Iran here. He says, I'll start it again. America will never make concessions to terrorists. To do so would only invite more terrorism. Once we head down that path, there will be no end to it. And almost immediately, Reagan does just that. He makes concessions to the terrorist he was talking about. And amazing concessions, too. Because if there's anything Iran needs in 1985, it's weapons. Because they are engaged in a horrific war with Iraq at that point. A devastating war. And they're on their heels and they need weapons. And now they have access to American weaponry sold by the White House every time a hostage gets taken. It's exactly what Reagan was warning, that it would incentivize hostage taking. That, could, that sort of situation could get real dicey real quick. But they decide to do it anyway. Or Reagan does, at least. Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger, he's a no. Secretary of State George Shultz, he's a no. Reagan's brand new chief of staff, this guy Don Regan, he's a no. And they all argue against it. Secretary Weinberger, in his contemporaneous notes of, of their meeting, he recalls that Reagan said, quote, he could answer the charges of illegality, but he couldn't answer the charge that, quote, big, strong Ronald Reagan passed up the chance to free the hostages. To which Weinberger responds, visiting hours are Thursday, implying that prison 
would be the result. I'll come visit you in prison, says Secretary Weinberger. But they do it anyway. So the big sails to Iran are two types of missiles. They're tow missiles and hawk missiles. Tow missiles are these smaller, two-blanched anti-tank missiles. They're less expensive. And hawks are these much larger surface-to-air missiles. And both are desperately needed by Iran for their war against Iraq. Because Iraq, at that point, might as well be a U.S. ally. The White House, as early as 1983, knew of Saddam Hussein's, quote, almost daily use of chemical weapons, according to documents that are now declassified. And Reagan still supported Saddam during that war, much more than they did to Iran. With Iran, they just sold them weapons. There was much more logistical support and, and diplomatic support given Saddam during this time. During this time of, quote, almost daily use of chemical weapons. It's, it's insane, really. It deserves its own episode, if not a whole podcast, that relationship between Reagan's White House and Saddam during that period. But, I, you know, I can't get into it here, but, but the takeaway is that once they started selling arms to Iran, they are supporting both sides in the Iran-Iraq war. One of the bloodiest wars, probably, I guess, the bloodiest war since Vietnam. And they're aiding both sides. So with these arms sales to Iran, we can tell that they know that they're doing something illegal, that they're wading into these like more and more treacherous legal waters because they go to great lengths to effectively launder the weapons. Casper Weinberger privately called it washing to Reagan and advised against it, saying that washing the sales through Israel wouldn't make it legal because you're still selling weapons to terrorists, in essence. But what he means by washing, and what I would call just laundering, is getting the Israelis to send the weapons to the Iranians. The, the Israelis were and still are the biggest customer of, of U.S. weapons. So they're sitting on all manner of U.S. weapons. Washington provides a good deal of the weapons that the Israelis use. And so they've got all these tow missiles and hawk missiles. And so the White House gets the Israelis to send X number of tow missiles to Iran and then they say, we'll get you back. We'll replenish your stockpiles. So it's an effective transfer of X number of tow missiles or Hawk missiles to Iran. But it's sort of laundered through Israel. It's not a direct transfer. The missiles don't, you know, leave the United States and just go to Iran. Here's an example of the sort of circuitous route that some of those missile shipments would take. So at some point, they're sending 80 Hawk missiles to Iran. So 80 Hawk missiles leave Israel, and they have to be in Portugal at noon. Then those 80 Hawks are loaded in Portugal, loaded onto three charter planes owned by what's called a proprietary. A proprietary is a company that's secretly owned by the CIA. We see a lot of this during all of Iran-Contra. So these 80 missiles loaded onto three charter planes, and then those three charter planes have to take off at two-hour intervals for Tabriz. It's a city in northwest Iran. And then those 80 missiles that the Israelis sent to Portugal are eventually replenished by the Americans. So not only are the arms deals sort of laundered through Israel, but the missiles are flown to a fourth country 
to be placed in what look like civilian aircraft, but are actually CIA planes. But it works, at least eventually. The Americans end up getting stiff the first time, with no hostages being released for 100 tow missiles. But the White House tries again, and they send even more tow missiles, 408 this time. And just hours after those planes touched down in Iran, Reverend Benjamin Weir is released in Lebanon after 16 months in captivity. So they're batting one for two now. Two shipments of missiles and one hostage returned. But they're calling that a win. They're feeling good. So they negotiate through their back channels to the Iranians. They don't deal directly with the Iranians. They're dealing through these back channels. But they make this deal for Hawk missiles now instead of those tow missiles for more hostages. But it turns into this total fiasco with the plane leaving Israel, but then being forced back down by Israeli authorities. Then it's ordered not to land by Portuguese authorities. It's a total nightmare, but Oliver North ends up working it out. But then the missiles get to Iran and they're the wrong ones or the Iranians are unhappy with them. They don't do a thing that the Iranians wanted. They don't they don't shoot high enough. But even Maybe worse than that is they, they have Israeli markings on them. Hebrew on the side of the missiles. I mean, they're Israeli missiles. But that pisses the Iranians off because, you know, they, they share a mutual hatred with Israel. Iranians and Israelis don't much care for each other. And they're like, why did you send us these Israeli missiles with all this Hebrew on the side of them? That don't even shoot right. But North... Oliver North, ever the optimist, turns this debacle into what would eventually threaten damn near everybody in the White House when he offers to take over the arms transactions himself, him and Secord. He says, tell you what, that last Hawk shipment was trash. We almost got caught like a million times. The Iranians aren't happy. We didn't get a hostage. It was awful. So let me and Secord do it now. We'll eliminate that Israeli laundering component, and me and Secord will sell direct to the Iranians. And Reagan agrees. And just like with the arms sales to the Contras, North and Secord decide to secretly skim profits off the sales. And not small profits. Massive profits. And where do those profits go? Right around the Boland Amendment and right into the bank account of the enterprise. Some of which money would then be funneled, diverted to the Contras. The rest of that enterprise money is just there for the enterprise to just do whatever they want. And at that point, it is illegal on top of illegal, illegal on top of illegal on top of... Blame Reagan, blame Oliver North. of the United States vis-a-vis Latin America and Central America. There has never been a time when a country made a revolution for the poor people where it was not overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA, overthrown by the CIA.